All right. Welcome to episode seven of the PhD podcast. Uh, Jason and I are thrilled to have Mackenzie Pearson all the way from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Uh, Mac, thanks for taking some time to be with us. Yeah, of course. Um, if you can start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, uh, and basically who you are. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, first, thank you so much for having me on. I'm super excited. Um, like you guys said, I am Mac Pearson, and I am currently a fourth-year PhD candidate at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Um, I started this whole academic journey uh, in Iowa, and that's where I'm originally from. I went to Luther College, which is in Decorah, Iowa, and I played basketball. Um, there was kind of where I got into kind of kinesiology, um, figuring out that there was more than just pre-med for me. And um, I took my first kinesiology class as a junior, and I changed everything about my course of study at that point. And I was able to fit in all my courses and whatnot in the four years, and I realized that this was something that I was really interested in. And it was focused around ACL injury prevention. Um, being a ba uh, college basketball player, I saw a lot of not only my teammates, but friends and opponents tear their ACL. And I wanted basically to figure out how I couldn't or wouldn't tear my ACL. Um, so maybe it was a little selfish uh, in that regard. Um, I then took my um, education from Luther College and went to Northeastern University in Boston. Um, I got earned my master's degree there. And then I actually did a second master's at Cal State Long Beach in Long Beach, California. Um, and then springboarded me here to UNCG. And where, again, I'm currently studying um, applied neuromechanics. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So, you know, one thing that we ask all of our guests is to send us an article that, that kind of influenced them and their research interests. And you sent, um, you sent a, well, I'm going to be a little biased here, but a wonderful article <laughs> because uh, it was, you know, some of the authors here are from from UNLV and then and Dr. Wolf is on this. So, mm -hmm. but, um, so the title of the title of the paper was triple play additive contributions of enhanced expectancies, autonomy support, and an external focus of attention to motor learning. So can you tell us a little bit about, um, sort of why you chose this article to send us and then how this has sort of uh, played a role into your research? Yeah. Um, so I was actually taking an independent study my first semester here at UNCG and I was tasked with just getting more in-depth into motor learning uh, and trying to figure out kind of how I could use motor learning in ACL injury prevention. Um, I stumbled upon the optimal theory, and, uh, and no, I didn't pick the optimal theory for this podcast, just so um, <laughs> clear. <laughs> um, and I stumbled upon it, and as soon as I read it, I felt like it connected what I knew from kind of a strength and conditioning, physical therapy standpoint, coaching standpoint, as well as what we learn in the lab. Um, and it kind of overcame and connected a lot of things for me as a researcher um, to try to figure out how we could negate ACL injury and maybe impact some of the numbers we're seeing. So Mac, this is uh, Jason here, and I'm really familiar as well with the <laughs> theory, given that I've lived with Harji for the past two years. <laughs> all he talk, that's all he talks about the optimal theory. Optimal yeah. theory. And we actually, we've done some research together on optimal theory, but being a biomechanist and doing motor learning is, uh, I don't know how, I don't know how some people feel about that. But anyways, uh, a question I have for you, and this is, I guess, a question for both of you guys, since you guys are in this, you know, the similar field and doing similar types of research, is that this study, and there's been some other related motor learning studies, they examine learning after a, a single day retention period. So they'll have day one, 
and then they'll come back 24 hours later. My question to, I guess, both of you guys is, I'm just throwing this out there, can we, can we say at that point that true motor learning has occurred with a study design like this? And if, if there's other ways that we can assess study design, or excuse me, motor learning, what, what ways can we do that? This is coming from a biomechanist, you know, <laughs> you know take it with a grain of salt there. Um, you want to kick it off first? Uh, you know, I, I just think there's been so many studies that looked at just one day retention period. I do feel like we need longer ones. I, I feel like it's get, I think actually uh, your group did like a seven day one or even, even longer, a couple weeks, mm-hmm. I think. I think that, but that was the only sort of uh, like study that even looked at it you know, even beyond a couple of days. So I do think that we need to do more in terms of uh, how many days in between and all that. Uh, but typically, it's been, we've assessed it through one day retentions, two day retention, three day retention. That's pretty much how it's been. So, you know, it is, it is, it is what it is. I think, I mean, I think we should definitely strive to do it for longer periods, maybe even add more transfer tasks, which I know Mac will talk about and, and stuff like that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, this is all about you. So if you, you do your thing. <laughs> Mac, I'm curious um, on your thoughts on this as well. Cause like I said, I've heard it from Harjeev for the last like three years since I first you know, connected with him. And I'm curious to, to get more people's thoughts on this who do motor learning research on, the, on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, so like you said, not often do motor learning and biomechanists get in the same room together. I feel exactly. like there's some sort of divide. At oh, I, I know. I live with this guy. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we've been um, and Jason, Jason, I class my classify myself as a biomechanist. So um, I think for your retention question, I think that it's one partially has to do with the skill that you're learning. We know that some skills can be learned and picked up fairly easily um, and retained over time. But I think that coming from uh, an injury standpoint, especially ACL, currently ACL injury prevention programs really don't do any type of retention testing um, and transfer task testing. Um, so I think it would be very interesting to have retention testing, not only being at the end of your program for an ACL injury prevention program, but then during your postseason, during your preseason, during your off season, see how you kind of change because we know, especially with young athletes, they're constantly modifying their movements to hopefully obviously being more advantageous for themselves and performance. Um, but I think having more retention, I think is definitely ideal. I think that, retention testing for researchers is hard. It's hard to get participants to come back uh, numerous times. And I think that's one of the biggest hurdles we have right now is just keeping people in the lab um, and then having them come day after day. And I think, like you said, getting people in the lab or um, testing more is, is obviously, obviously ideal. Um, I think what we see after one day, especially with some studies, um, we're seeing a lot of learning and a lot of motor, motor learning happening. So mm-hmm. I think that it'd be interesting to see how can how can a subject or athlete retain that information moving forward. It would be interesting too because with like ACL injuries and you know even some of the work that I do with concussion, there's there's time points like there's checkpoints. Like with ACL, we look at you at three months and compare it to six months, and compare it to nine months. Concussion, we would look at your first like forty eight hours. We look at your week, two weeks, a month post injury. So just be interesting to see some of these motor learning principles applied at like some of those like okay, these are the checkpoints you should be at at three months post-ACL. You should be doing this activity, this activity. But um, just to switch topics just a little bit, uh, Mac, and something that you actually mentioned in, when you were answering that question, which I thought you did a great job, by the way. I think that was really good insight into it. 
was in terms of like implementation of or implementation of the optimal factors, uh, how would that change as a function of skill level and or like task difficulty? Like in the study that um, that you shared with us with the triple play, it was using the non-dominant arm. And my question, I guess, is would we need would we need to alter our cueing or some of our motivational techniques if this task was already like more familiar? Like if we were looking at you know, throwing performance in an elite baseball or softball athlete with their dominant arm, how would we potentially need to change our, our technique? Um, I think a way to counter that question is what kind of percentage are you looking at gaining from? So if you're looking at an elite athlete, you're wanting maybe a 0.2 to 1% change. And so I, Mm -hmm. when you deal with maybe a less skilled athlete, we could have a lot, there's a lot more growth for that athlete to occur. Um, I think that taking what you do with elite athletes and what we do with maybe novice athletes, it also comes down to the type of coach. Um, and I think that especially with optimal theory, it really lends itself well to not only physical therapists and athletic trainers, but also coaches. And so coaches are the ones that see their players most often. And I think just like you would coach players slightly differently, Um, with what they need, I think that taking optimal theory and kind of almost uh, personalizing it for each athlete, maybe athlete A really needs more of a focus on their external focus of attention. Maybe athlete B really needs that autonomy of support. Um, So I think that that's what's so great about optimal theory is you can kind of make it your own for what your athlete needs um, or subject needs for that kind of growth that you're looking for. Meg, I have just one one sort of follow-up question for for for, you, for listeners who aren't familiar with optimal theory. Could you just give like yeah. a brief explanation of what it is? Like, what are some of the key tenets of it? Just for necessarily well-versed in like optimal theory or different types of yeah, no problem. Um, so, optimal theory is basically three components. Um, we have our external focus of attention, uh, meaning that we're thinking about outcomes and things outside our body. Um, autonomy of support and, um, enhanced expectancies are our other two and autonomy of support is kind of like, how do I have any type of control in this situation? And the way I implement, um, autonomy of support is giving the athlete or subject the choice of when they get feedback and then enhanced expectancies is just feeling like you're a little bit better or at least not the worst of other subjects. So you're doing well or as well as other people performing the same task. So it's almost kind of like a false sense of confidence as I kind of look at it. Yeah. So, um, you know, yeah, take, Harjeev, take, please correct taking me. the, no, 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 I, I, hundred <laughs> percent, I agree. I, I wanted to ask you because you have a pretty interesting sort of, um, uh, research in, uh, in terms of like lower extremity injury and stuff like that and being applied to injury prevention and rehab. Um, so I want, I want to know, you know, how can, how do you think the optimal theory can be implemented by like practitioners, physical therapists, uh, athletic trainers and whatnot? Uh, well, I'm a huge, um, supporter of applied research, um, and applied science, because I think that we don't want to create such a vortex of research that we're not sharing it. Um, so I think the applied world is a wonderful place and a great outlet for motor learning and biomechanics. Um, I think with athletic trainers and physical therapists, it's a great way to implement small changes into what they're already doing. We know athletic trainers and 
physical therapists are being successful in negating injury um, and helping athletes rehab from injury. Um, but I think that just small changes can really make a big difference. So like I think about um, not from even not from a physical therapy or athletic training standpoint, um, but just how we talk to patients and how we talk to athletes. And it can be something as simple as thinking about, you know, when my mom fell and broke her kneecap, right? Shattered it in four places, horrific injury. Um, welcome to Iowa in the winter, right? Um, just, she couldn't fire her muscles again and she just wasn't firing correctly. And it's just small things that I was telling her to do that she could then take and think about and take back to her physical therapist. And it, it really helped. And it was something she's like, I had no idea the small changes, um, in wording could make such a difference. And she had EMG, she was looking at muscle activation and she was just like, who knew, (laughs) We did, uh, that, but that's, fine. <laughs> that's, that's the, that's the amazing part about this theory yeah. is like literally just a change in one or two words can have a drastic effect in, in, in mm-hmm. how we perform and learn motor skills. Um, do you, so in your opinion, uh, so a lot of these optimal theory articles, they'll, you know, implement these factors uh, in different ways in different orders and whatnot. Now, do you think, uh, the order matters. So like if you go from EE, uh, usually if you go from AS to EF to EE or whatever it may be, um, do you think the order matters? And can we start off with maybe attention and then go to motivation or the other way around? Like, you know, especially with the studies that are more uh, applying every single thing. Yeah. Um, I, the order of it is not something that we do in our research. We stick okay. with the same script for most of our stuff. Um, but I know you guys are doing some order and publishing on order. Um, of using optimal theory. And I think that's very interesting because coming from a coaching standpoint is you typically want to deliver that external focus first and how to correct the skill and then the uh, motivational factors kind of a second and third. I think, again, it depends on the athlete, the skill level, where a higher skill level um, athlete wouldn't necessarily need such a focus maybe on external focus of attention. They might need more motivational factors um, because they already have the skill set where a novice athlete might really benefit from having an external focus first, focusing on the skill um, and then having that motivational coming in later. But it's a super interesting way to look at optimal theory. Yeah. And then obviously there's a couple of papers that kind of threw everything at once. Right. And now Mm -hmm. then it's like, how do we know which one is working Mm -hmm. versus which one's not? And so I do think it sets the stage for people like us that are interested in it to then go ahead and keep doing research and figure out, you know, what's going on in the brain for this, you know, what's, what's going on in terms of like the biomechanical aspect of this. So that's pretty awesome. Um, that was good stuff, yeah. man. I appreciate the conversation about just like the simple changes in, in verbiage or wording can make a big difference because Harjeev and I have had a lot of thoughts about like, or at least I have, I've had a lot of thoughts recently about like how we can alter things like, like concussion management. And mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, you have patients and athletes who like ruminate on their symptoms. Like they have a persistent mm-hmm. headache and, persistent dizziness and they you know they constantly think about it constantly think about it so it's interesting to try to explore you know some of the work that you guys do in motor learning and how we can apply it to other populations who have never really done anything like that like acl research is starting to get more into the motor learning field but it'd be interesting to see how you know some of these other injury groups like concussion and different things like that kind of start implementing some of these because there's definitely a use for i mean the research you know, behind the optimal theory and some of these other motor learning principles are pretty solid at this point. We know that, you know, we know attentional focus, external focus works really well. We know that providing autonomy and 
you know, providing, you know, enhanced expectancies work in, you know, a lot of different populations, but it'd be interesting to see more into not necessarily moving away from like sporting performance, but kind of bringing it into more of like these injury groups and seeing, you know, how, how can it help with recovery from an injury, whether it's an ACL, whether it's concussion, can it help speed up that process? Can it make these athletes more durable when they get back into sport? So it's cool just to, to watch you guys from that side of things and how I can apply it into some of my current work. Uh, Max, switching gears just a little bit, um, mm-hmm. you know, we know with like the COVID circumstances, research has been really, you know, strained right now. There's a lot of just, yeah. we're still navigating the environment. We'll be navigating until we finish our PhDs. But what are some of the current and, you know, hopefully planned research studies they have ongoing right now in your lab and how this relates to your research interests. And if you could speak a little bit on your dissertation work, I know we talked a little bit about it off air and some of the things that you're doing specifically for your PhD. Yeah, so with COVID, it's kind of put an abrupt stop to most, I think, people's research. Um, I know a lot of researchers are kind of switching to more survey-based data. Um, We have two master's students who kind of got caught with COVID um, in the COVID situation where they need, they need to finish. <laughs> um, but with the timeline they're on, it's hard to finish in a year, uh, especially with now COVID being another barrier for them. And um, just talking with my advisor, you know, he was like, we're, we're going to have to switch them to more survey-based data just because it's doable. Um, as of right now for my dissertation, I just sent off my IRB a couple of days ago. So fingers crossed on that. Um, through our university, we're doing a COVID ramp up. And so we basically state how we're going to keep not only myself, but our subjects safe. Um, And I think that that's kind of the biggest barrier we're at right now with our ongoing research in our lab is that we just graduated quite a few doc students. So their research has obviously ended. um, And we're kind of in this lull um, trying to figure out what the next step is and how we move forward with maybe some of the projects we have been working on. Um, especially we have Dr. Raysbeck who works with elderly people. Yep. Um, we also have Dr. Jenny Ettenier, um, and Dr. Lori Weideman, um, outside of our applied neuromechanics lab. Um, and they, you know, with being a sports psych and exercise phys, it's hard to implement and contact even how do we, you know, how do we access the elderly now? How do we access someone with Alzheimer's now? Um, making sure that safety is our number one priority. So that's kind of the biggest battle we're, we're trying to overcome right now is how do we make sure everyone is safe? Um, not only ourselves, but our subjects and our lab mates. What are, what, so what, what sort of projects were you working on with your dissertation pre COVID? I know we talked about some of your findings, if you wouldn't mind sharing with listeners. Yeah. So pre COVID, (laughs) um, I did a pretty large study. uh, I call it the squat study. Um, it took 75 individuals and we looked, we had 15 per group. So we had a control, we had our optimal theory group, then we had our paired, contr- uh, paired uh, components. So we had two out of the three. Mm-hmm. Um, great study, uh, definitely needed because we needed to make sure that we were seeing results um, and kind of just having more exploration into optimal theory in the lower extremity. Uh, because as you guys know from the paper, it was applied in the upper extremity. Uh, from there, it was the squat study, we looked at knee separation distance. And so, you know, kind of a hot topic in ACL injury world, does knee valgus is really a risk factor or not? Um, I don't need to get into that now, but everyone has <laughs> their opinion on it appears. Um, and I think that using optimal theory in knee, something as simple as knee separation distance with very novice squatters 
um, it was a really, it was really successful. And I think the hardest part about optimal theory from that squat study is we realized if we touch on every component of optimal theory, it's a lengthy paragraph to kind of offhand say to the subject when we're cueing them to not overwhelm them. And so from the squat study, we tried to pare down our um, directions and we tried to ramp up our task um, as the box squat is not a super challenging task. Um, if you guys have ever box squatted, uh, it's pretty easy to get. And we use the depth drop as our transfer task again, not super challenging. Um, and so we wanted to kind of ramp up the difficulty um, so we actually switched to more sports specific movement. So recently, as of pre-COVID, we did a small study uh, last summer and into the fall where we took and we had um, someone shoot at the block. So the large block in the lane for basketball, uh, they did block shots and then they would run down and back to try to fatigue them because we felt like we wanted to make sure that we were looking at their true mechanics um, that were more sports specific or realistic for a game of basketball. They did block shots. Um, we only, we didn't do any transfer tasks. We just want to make sure we are kind of exploring that in a more dynamic world. And, uh, even with a small sample size, optimal theory really outperformed our control group. Uh, they obviously were focusing on making the basket, but we obviously were looking at their knees. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and I think that pre COVID was a great jump start into my dissertation where we are looking at a basketball rebounding task. And because the only problem is you do a shooting task and you're the only person in the gym besides the subject and they don't make it, the ball kind of goes all over um, and can hit cameras. So like that's one issue we potentially ran into. Um, But moving for the rebounding task, um, I'm really excited about it. And I think that using the rebounding task, looking at a, um, a task that, you know, you see a lot of ACL injury with using a transfer task of a maximal vertical jump with our vertex. I think it's a great way to implement and see really, are they able to transfer those good mechanics when they're trying to reach for as high as they can? Uh, it doesn't take a lot for someone to be com- pretty competitive with themselves on trying to get the next run on a vertex. Um, and then based on our rebounding and our vertical tasks, we're actually kind of taking a step back and we're seeing does optimal theory play, depending on what group you're in, does that impact your balance and coordination? So we're taking a B-Trax force plate, which is just a portable, portable force plate, and we're looking at center of pressure. And we're kind of seeing, can this be used or applied in the physical therapy and athletic training world? So it's really interesting stuff. So essentially, from, from what, you're, what you're saying and my interpretation of it is that implementing optimal factors are improving our, like, our knee valgus. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. So wouldn't necessarily say knee valgus, but just proper knee mechanics. So we want to have more um, flexion in our knees when we're seeing our participant come from the rebound and obviously want to have more in alignment mm-hmm. um, rather than maybe that knee valgus that you could be seeing. I see. I see. Okay. So that supports, that supports some of the work that's uh, been done over the Netherlands too. Correct, Harjeev? Yeah. At- yeah. They look at like a lot of attention and well, mainly just attention right now. Uh, and like, you know, jump landings and all that so they'll find like increased knee flexion and stuff but that's uh again that's just a piece of the theory so there's a lot more to a lot more to uncover you know i wish i could be your participant because i actually tore my acl um while getting a rebound in basketball oh so, really yeah that, that's how i tore it and so oh god it's uh it's interesting because i mean i don't i don't recall what happened i do definitely feel like my knee just kind of 
the stiff landing and boom, it kind of just happened. I, that's how I feel, but I, I don't know. But uh, yeah, man, I, I wish I, I wish I could uh, be your participant. Anyways, um, I wish you could too because I need participants. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's um, what's uh, one uh, practical takeaway that a practitioner uh, can take from uh, from your expertise? I think it's just kind of what we touched on earlier. It's those small changes um, can make a relatively large difference in your athlete or subject um, participant, however you want to deem who you're working with. Um, I think it's just those small changes can have a large impact. And it's recognizing that, um, you know, in our friend group, we have quite a few kind of, we call hard versus soft science. Mm -hmm. Um, And we always say words have meaning. And I think that, you know, small changes can have a large impact, especially when we're thinking about sport performance, we're thinking about um, injury prevention, injury reduction. And I think it's definitely worth a try. If you're, if you are a physical therapist, athletic trainer, try start implementing this. It's it's a little challenging at first. I'll give you that um, to figure out how to cue, but I think it's well worth the time um, for the athletes or the population you work for. That's awesome. Well, there's a lot lot of good evidence to support it now too. I mean, motor learning and, you know, in various populations has had a lot of strong support, whether whatever motor learning theory that you're you know, necessarily tied to. But I think, I think we've seen a better adoption of some of these motor learning principles, just from some of the things that I've seen clinically that I think is, is exciting. You know, we can potentially mm-hmm. not only prevent these injuries from occurring if they were, if they were to happen or whatever, but also we can help with recovery times and things like that and get these athletes back out into the sport if an injury were to occur. So it's exciting research that, that you guys do specifically. I think it's a lot. Of- yeah. I think the best part is that it doesn't require a lot of equipment, and right. a lot of a lot of money. You know, it's like these things that are readily cost effective and available to, for you to do. Um, so it's exciting, and I'm I'm really excited to see you know where you go with this. Your dissertation work seems amazing, and obviously, I'm, again, I'm biased again because we're, <laughs> we're, we're on the same page over here. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, Mac, it's been a great it's been a great honor to have you on. Uh, let's keep in touch. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, uh, that's pretty much what we got. Thanks again and, and stay safe and, you know, best wishes on your dissertation progress going forward. I know we're all in uncharted territories right now. <laughs> Thank you we are. to speak with us. You know, Harjeev and I have said this on a couple episodes now that, you know, right now it's difficult. We can't, you know, it's tougher to put papers out there right now. It's tough. You know, obviously we don't have in-person conferences right now, so we thought this was just a good idea to get researchers like yourself out into the onto the public and seeing what's you know some of the stuff you're doing. So again, we really appreciate your your time today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Um, again, I'm super excited to get the ask to be on your podcast, and I think any time that we can kind of get our own research out there um, yeah. and have people kind of understand what we're doing, what it kind of really means to be. A, a biomechanist to be someone in motor learning. Um, I think it's a great opportunity. So I think you guys are doing awesome, awesome stuff. Thank you. Appreciate it. Matt, yeah, before appreciate you it. Second, where, uh, how can some people contact you if they're, if they're interested in learning more about your research, what are some good ways to get a hold of you? Yeah. Um, email is a great way, um, which I think you guys are going to link my email up. Um, mm-hmm. It's just we'll my, uh, which you could, yeah, that'd be great. Um, but Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any way um, you want to connect um, and talk, LinkedIn, uh, I'm on all the stuff. And again, I think you guys will link up my Perfect. my names and whatnot. So. Definitely will do. Perfect. All right, cool. Thanks, Thanks again. for coming on. Take care. Thank you.